This is the Life Therapy with Zeta podcast. I'm Zeta. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Conversations with Ourselves. Today I am in conversation with Helen Ree, the former lawyer and now a successful intuitive guide and coach. Helen and I are going to have a conversation about race and racism. Shortly after the murder of George Floyd, I saw a post come up in my Facebook feed. It was written by Helen. It's openness and it's honesty. Refreshing and surprising to see. It was the only post that I have seen like it, written by a white person. This I know. She says, I know I have massively ignored and avoided my complicit role as a white person in all of this for way too long. And for that, I am truly sorry. I know that unconscious racism runs through my veins. I asked Helen if she would be willing to come and join me for a conversation about race. Two women, one black one white, sitting down to talk about racism. It's not often that we get to have this conversation on the subject of race, or for many to openly admit their own racist feelings, regardless of their colour, their gender, their ethnic group, or their race. Thank you for listening. Hi, Helen, and welcome to Conversations with Ourselves. It's really, really lovely to, well, I was going to say have you here, but we're in two different countries at the moment, which is also a pretty awesome thing. So uh, just so our listeners can have a sense of who you are, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Zita. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you. My name's Helen Reed, and I currently uh, work as an intuitive guide. My background was in the legal sector. I worked as a lawyer in London for eight years. And then just about a year ago, I moved over to the south of Spain with my husband and two children. Um, so we have been enjoying a much more relaxed way of life over the past 12 months and the year-round sunshine. So yeah, that's where we are. That's where we are now. Sounds wonderful. I like the sound of Spain and the ocean and a more peaceful life, especially in light of where we find ourselves today. You know, one of the things that really touched me was a post that you shared on Facebook shortly after the tragic killing of George Floyd, the conversations around race and discrimination flared up. And in all the screaming that often happens when these tragedies occur, there was this voice of calm that came from your post and moved me to tears. And why it touched me so much was that I'd never had the experience of anyone so 
openly, publicly, in a truly heartfelt way, share their experience of racism, but from the perspective of so-called privilege, in that you're white, I'm black, and you highlighted in that post that you were aware of some of your own racist thoughts and beliefs. And I was so moved that I thought it would be a wonderful idea to share this conversation because we're told that we're polarized and that we're opposite. But I'm curious to know if that's really true. From my perspective as a systemic coach, that's not the way I'm trained to see the world and see life. But I'm also a human being and I come from a mixed ancestry. So can you share with me a little bit about firstly what prompted the post? What inspired or motivated you to share so openly on a public platform? Mm, yeah, of course. Um, and thank you for sharing how the post touched you because when you put something out there like that, obviously it feels hugely vulnerable and uncomfortable and it was the first time that I had really become aware of of the relevance that that racism has to me and the part that I had been playing without realizing it and when I watched the video of George Floyd and when I started to read and observe some of the responses to that horrific tragedy, knowing that it was just one example of numerous examples that I had been aware of in the past, something was different this time. And I don't know whether it was because it happened at a time where we had all been taking a step back and, and had a bit more space to reflect a bit more deeply, but something was different in that it really piqued my interest that I was responding from an emotional point of view. I was feeling very uncomfortable. And when I look back, I think in the past when I had experienced that discomfort, perhaps seeing um, something on the news about some kind of racist attack, I would have distracted myself, taken myself away, convinced myself that it didn't apply to me, it wasn't relevant, I'm not racist, I'm, you know, by being identified with being not racist, I don't have anything to contribute here. But this time it was different, as I said, it was something was so uncomfortable that it had to be faced. And when I looked and started to observe what I was experiencing, I realized that there was a lot of unconscious beliefs and thoughts and, and emotions that I hadn't been acknowledging and I had been pushing down and pretending that they weren't there. And suddenly it became really clear that it wasn't enough to, and it wasn't at all, it was never going to be satisfactory to say consciously I'm not racist when I work 
in the spiritual development industry. And I know that at least, you know, 95% of our actions and our choices and our behaviors are driven by the unconscious mind. And this was the first time in my whole life I'm, you know, and I'm, I feel deeply sorry. And I said in that post that it had taken so long for me to see that as a white person who has grown up in a predominantly white, with a predominantly white people throughout my whole life and throughout my whole education, and even to now, there were some truths to be faced within myself about why that was the case and why I found when I then reflected upon interactions and friendships with people, there weren't many of them, but with, with people who weren't white, people, some black people, some from other backgrounds, it, it was really uncomfortable to think about it and to, to see how those relationships, when I observed them, played out differently energetically and emotionally than with people with um, who were white and admitting that to myself and really being honest was really not comfortable and I just had this feeling that I needed to share what I was experiencing because first of all I wanted to own it I wanted to take responsibility for it because I really truly believe that that is what is going to bring the biggest and deepest change in this world, personal responsibility. And then I also wanted to apologize to the people who, you know, to my black friends and the people in my network who I have indirectly affected as a result of, or directly affected as a result of my, it's yeah, privilege and, and, and everything that just was running through my lineage that I had allowed to continue. Well, thank you. One of the things I'm really curious to understand is the feeling of discomfort. And then there's this sort of common belief that you can't have black friends and be racist. You know, the media portrayal is that racists are these you know, awful, awful, extreme white supremacists. So can you talk to me a bit more about the feeling of discomfort and how you experienced it? Was it a bodily thing or was it a thought thing or was it thought and bodily sensations meeting? And how could you hold friendships and relationships with black people or with Asian people or other and hold what you describe as racist ideas and beliefs for me it it was a, the discomfort is emotional it's in my body it feels constricting it feels heavy it's in my chest in my abdomen it feels heavy and when i'm with that and when i have the courage and I don't always have the courage, but when I have the courage to sit with it and be with it, then I do find that I receive what feels like inspiration and in the form of thoughts, in the form of words that help to unravel some of the, of the background of that heaviness, if you like. And, and, when, and when you talk about having friendships with black friends, I can think of three 
relationships where I've been relatively close to a black friend in the course of my whole life, which kind of speaks volumes in itself. And the, the first one was at university and the second, second at um, the law firm that I worked at. And then since meeting you, Zeta, so, you, I mean, you're one of the three. And what I found with those three relationships, and obviously I've known you for, for less time and, and, and I know you less well, but it's always been a lot more surface level. I've never allowed myself to, to really deeply connect. And that's what I can see as the pattern. I can see I'm not racist. I've got a black friend. Yet there's something that is creating this level of disconnection, this level of uncertainty in, and I guess like kind of a lack of trust energetically in the relationship. It's not something that, you know, I never fell out, like we like never had, you know, big arguments or conflicts or anything. It's just something. And obviously this happens in all relationships, you know, that we have that relationships, you know, human beings are complex and and when you bring them together, you increase the complexity and, and that, that goes for all relationships. But when I look at those particular relationships in the context of my life so far, I, I can see that I, I didn't allow myself to really deeply connect with those individuals. And I never questioned why. And when you did question why, what did you discover? So then recently, when I started to, to look at it, I felt like this runs deeper. This runs on a deeply unconscious level. And, and we can always see the, how certain unconscious beliefs and patterns and programming and conditioning is playing out when we look at the physical world and what's actually happening in lives. And when I observed, okay, so... If I feel like that and I can see that that's how those relationships were and I now see that I wasn't willing to accept any kind of responsibility in the bringing about of change in relation to racism in this world and I didn't think that I had any part to play, yet when I look at my interactions with people from different races throughout my life so far, you know, they've been very small in number and very surface level what is that telling me and then i get this big you know this heavy feeling in the pit of my stomach and i know that it's because there's that there are things that i believe unconsciously and now i'm becoming aware of it that that mean that I see those people as different to me. I see those people as less than me on some level. I see them as very separate from, from me as a white person. Hmm. And with considering less than, do you mean uh, in terms of equal rights, intelligence? capability in what sense less than or just an overall or is it just an overall less than it's so interesting because 
and and just to reiterate like this is this is hugely uncomfortable because consciously i'm set you know my mind is saying no you know you don't see them as less than of course you don't but i know that that's my logical mind trying to keep me safe trying to stop me from delving into this more deeply and really digging into something that has been going on for generations and generations and generations that now is really being called to look at to be looked at and those three people you included that I've spoken about you know you're all very intelligent and, and this is one of the things that really set I guess when I observe the relationships the fact that I even had to comment to myself in my mind about how intelligent you three are automatically hmm. then makes me see that that wasn't a given and it was something that is almost surprising i guess it's when i when i say oh you know that you know this and, and all three exceptionally intelligent you know and it's almost like the if i had you know for example when i met you for the first time we were in a room with um at least three other white people and i didn't think oh he's really intelligent you know <laughs> <laughs> so, so the fact yeah, that i, I even that. observed your intelligence as being worthy of commentary it it, it kind of highlights the unconscious bias that i carry if that makes sense. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, as I listen to you, and I mean really listen to you, not from a place of being a victim or not wanting to shame or blame the way you experience life, what strikes me is that you're, what you're describing is no, not dissimilar to feelings I myself have had about someone who's other, if I'm perfectly honest. And that's powerful because I'm reminded, you know, of all of us have this need to belong. And whilst we belong, we're innocent to those who we came from and the beliefs that were imparted to us. And the other who is different, be they from another island or another country or have different skin color, they're other, they're different. You know, I know that the perceived difference is that because of the color of your skin, you are, have access to more privilege than I do. And, you know, maybe we'll come to that later on. But what I'm curious about is we're not born in a vacuum. We're born into cultures and belief systems and families. So I wonder where you inherited those ideas. Or yeah. beliefs. Um, so my mum's side of the family is Irish, which is interesting of itself. Um, having spoken to you previously about Irish history, and then my dad's side is, I mean, predominantly you know from England, but as we know, that's <laughs> that's very um, general. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's a very general term. We are also a, a nation of immigrants. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. um, <laughs> you know, all the way back to 1066 and I mean, before. So, yeah. I was brought up by my parents being told that, you know, being racist was wrong and that everybody, you know, is equal and it doesn't matter about the color of their skin. That was the, the narrative, if you like, which was different, I think, to the narrative that they received. Mm -hmm. So there was a step forward in that generation to be acknowledged, even though obviously it didn't go far enough. And then I, there are examples, you know, of when I was younger with grandparents and with, um, on, to a lesser degree with my parents where the energy, the, the feeling, even if the words said one thing, the feeling behind the words didn't match. And I mean, with my grandparents, the words matched the, the energy of, of, um, I, I have experiences from childhood where, you know, I have witnessed at least one of my grandparents talking in a very racist way about black people. But then with my parents' generation, it was much more that they kind of said the right things and they didn't know that their energy didn't match. They probably felt funny inside, but at that point, the education wasn't there to, you know, you don't acknowledge your feelings. You don't talk about how you feel. You don't understand really why you feel so uncomfortable inside as you speak these words that don't feel authentic. So I can see very clearly that I, I've inherited a lot of conditioning around, mm. you know, racist conditioning and, and conditioning around white privilege and white supremacy. And, and you know, it's even this experience has been really useful mm. and, and that's a privilege too, that, you know, we've started opening conversations now with our, I say we, me and my two sisters conversations with our parents about this and you know they're they're open and it feels like they have less accessibility to being aware I mean they've had a lot longer without being able to be aware of how belief systems might be playing out so for example I I had a conversation with my with one of my parents the other day and and, it, and what mm. was coming up was uh, was all about well you know all lives matter you know the we, we need to be looking at the whole of humanity right now we need to be thinking about how we can unite we need to be thinking about all of these um the other things you know and and we can talk about race yes but what about um economic inequality you know because that's really at the heart of so much of of the issue and and I said in response, well, the thing is, if you have, you know, a, let's say we are, you know, let's, let's imagine us as this one whole unit, this one whole being. And if a particular area of trauma is coming up to be looked at and acknowledged and healed, and you say, oh, no, no, but we need to look at the whole being. You can't possibly bring about that healing if you, unless you really honor it. And 
And that's how it feels to me. You know, when we talk about healing trauma in an individual person, for example, if there is racial abuse or if there is sexual abuse or whatever trauma is coming up to be healed in the individual, you can't suddenly say, oh, well, you know, we're just going to look at the, the healing of the whole being without honoring, honoring and acknowledging the different areas of healing that really want to be looked at at the time that, that they want to be looked at. And it feels like now, you know, the universe or whatever, what, for whatever reason right now, racism is the issue, is the, is the collective trauma, the area of trauma that has affected so many people for so long that that, that that does have to be in the spotlight. That does have to be the area that we focus on because because it's what we're being invited to look at. And and if we ignore it and continue to ignore what we are being invited to look at, then we don't help anyone and we don't evolve and we don't grow as as a collective. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And in four years, it will come back, even though bubbling beneath the surface the noxious fumes are still gathering. I myself have to admit it, it is deeply uncomfortable. I don't want to have to look at it because I live with it in one sense every day. Mm. You know, I said to my partner that the moment I leave my house, I become a black woman and all sorts of things are projected onto me and probably even more projected onto black men like George Floyd. And the moment I go back into my house, I'm just me, just a human being who loves and cares about people. But that's my personal experience. There is this uh, experience and it's, you know, there's chaos all over the world and there's all sorts of traumas going on. But in the Western world, this one is repeatedly being asked to be addressed. And I think that it needs, needs to be, which is why, you know, I'm so grateful when you agree to come and have this conversation and be as open and as honest as it is possible for us to be and, you know, to invite others to have this conversation and even to sit with the discomfort of it all and hear the truths of other people. Otherwise, they become, you know, magnified as demons, but I know you're not a demon. <laughs> and I, as much as I know, I'm not a demon. But neither of us are perfect. We are conditioned and informed by what has come before. And we do have the luxury of being able to look at a time where for our parents and our grandparents, literally just day-to-day -day survival was the most mm. pressing matter. There's a lot we all have to learn, mostly from understanding and mostly from having these conversations. You know, I saw the title of a book that says why I'm not talking to white people about race. And I, for myself, I thought, well, if I come from that stance, I'm just really, repeating the behavior that I decry. I, I too become a perpetrator and I too become racist as if to say, you know, I'm not going to talk to you. 
And then I, you know, I rob you of your dignity and I rob myself of my dignity by saying, well, I can't have this com conversation. I'm not going to talk to you about it. And the shutters come down and the pain continues. I mean, I think we're all both aware because of the type of work we do that there is, you know, I'd love to heal the world. <laughs> That's not possible. But in the words of Mother Teresa, I think it was, from tiny raindrops come great waterfalls. And if we can all just open our hearts a little more and lean into the wind, we might change something, mm -hmm. if not for ourselves, but at least for the next generation. You've got two children. I'm supporting the raising of three and giving them a different narrative is so important, mm. but making it safe for them to explore the beliefs that they have already learned from TV and newspapers and movies and all sorts of things. Yeah. When yeah. you say that, when you say that we want to bring a new narrative forward while allowing them to explore what it is that has been carried forward to date. That is having those two mm. components feels so key because it's having this awareness that yes. there is all of this uncomfortable work that is required in order for us to grow and evolve. And I think often that's that is the part that's forgotten because that's the scary part. That's the bit that we don't want to do. <laughs> of course. We want it to be, be, be magicked out of the box like a genie from a bottle. Yeah. You know, take a pill yeah. and, and it's all fixed. But, you know, in my long experience, healing doesn't come that way. Even if you take a pill, it suppresses it and it comes up somewhere else. Well, we haven't looked at conscience and consciousness and our conscience that binds us deeply in loyalty and love so that we can survive to our family and our family's beliefs. If I'm going to demand that the racists let go of their ideas about me, I must be willing mm. to let go of the ideas I hold about them. Otherwise, it's a it's a one-way conversation. We've had too much of one-way conversations. We need two-way conversations. And the discomfort, I think, is recognizing that whether we're victims or perpetrators, we all hold the capacity mm. for both. And that's uncomfortable. You know, my own journey of balancing being mixed, belonging to so many ancestries of the... African perspective of people from the Caribbean, the Caribbean people being perspective of Africans, and then the parts of my ancestry that are Scottish and Jewish. Holding all of those is um, challenging, but it's also a privilege. And um, it allows me to enter rooms that uh, perhaps I might not necessarily have access to if I was singular in my loyalty and my belonging. And I think. We've lost the connection with history that by this point, 
in globalization, we are all carrying genetic information from different ethnic groups. If there is a group of people that are singularly only made up of one ethnic group, I'm amazed that they are surviving and flourishing in today's world. So how do we explore these truths with a certain degree of humility and honour the other that exists within ourselves? I mean, if I'm honest, when I look at you, I see a woman with brown hair, brown eyes, brownish hazelish eyes, and what I would call magnolia skin. And in my mind, it says, "Mm, somewhere in her ancestry, there's some black or brown. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, that's, that's what I've been raised with. I was, you know, even fascinated to discover that the most genetically similar to East Africans were people from Scandinavia with their tall blonde hair and blue eyes. So this ordering of our beliefs in what is really truly white or black is also distorted. Mm. I think it brings us back to these conflicts, these differences, this brutality, this violence which exists in us all is the expression of our insecurities, our shame, our vulnerability, and our trauma. Yeah, I agree 100%. Can I just ask you, Zita, you know, when you think about the book about, this is why I don't speak to white people about race, what is it that you feel towards white people right now or you know throughout your upbringing how is it how, how does it feel and how has it looked for you in terms of your relationship with white people that's a that's a big question but it's a valuable one so and i'm going to be quite honest <laughs> i'm going to be very honest i was raised with a huge amount of privilege and entitlement My father is from East Africa, is from a long line of chiefs that date back to the 1500s. And my mother is mixed, what we call brown in Barbados, the Caribbean. And although she came over at the time of what's collectively called Windrush, she never instilled in me really deeply this sense that I was less than or inferior in any way whatsoever, in fact, quite the contrary. And so when I got a scholarship to go to a private boarding school in the north of England, I was holding that sense. And it was a Quaker school. And the Quaker guiding principle is there is that of God in every man. And that was instilled every day, all day. I recently went back a couple of years ago and visited the school. I was like, wow, we were really indoctrinated with that message because every wall <laughs> had these posters and they've probably been there in you know the 40 years since I'd left. And I recognized that that was my truth. I know I've met, sat with, talked with, lunched with, hung out at parties with people who were profoundly racist. 
and would say to me straight to my face, yeah, but you're different. You're not like those ones who do this, that, and the other. So that was the world that was informing mine. I, at times, would drop into this feeling of being discriminated against. And I noticed that it happened when I went to university. And one of the modules I did was uh, gender studies. And it was a whole year of having drummed into me that as a black person descended from slavery and colonialism, I was less than in the history books. And I, I, I started to go, oh, wow, that must be my truth. Well, how did I miss that? And that effect was profound because it kind of dropped me down into a place of low self-worth and shame. Shame about who I was, shame about the way I looked. And it became very difficult for me then to see opportunities in life that might be available to me. Because now everybody had become a white person who was the cause of my, and people who looked like me, the cause of our demise. And as I held those beliefs, I got to confess it was really painful. That trauma manifested itself in so many ways that through my 20s and 30s were quite disruptive. I would have moments of relief for, um, when I visited America. And in some way, for whatever reason, I seemed to be, you know, adored and welcomed and given passes and access to wonderful jobs and opportunities without seeming to have done much for it other than to show up. So it wasn't really until I moved back to England that I started to have a sense that America was really different. But why hadn't I had that experience in America that was the same as other black people? What had made me different? Was it my accent? And I think in part it was my name. <laughs> was interpreted by Americans as being Japanese. And so when my portfolio would come out and I'd book a job, and then I'd turn up and they would say, oh, we were expecting a really cool Japanese person. I was like, well, you just got a really cool black person. And so we proceed. So it's been quite a checkered story, but there's a constant thread running underneath that there is that of God in every man. But there is also a constant thread of the sense of superiority and mm. um, better thanness that I was carrying particularly as an African. And I quietly prided myself on that. That's what informed my perceptions. So similarly to you being surprised that I was intelligent, I was surprised when I met a white person who was intelligent. And if they had the capacity to argue, debate, or reason, I was like, wow, they must have some black blood. <laughs> I remember I went, um, my school was partnered with a, a Catholic boarding school up north. And we went up there for debating society once, and I was paired with uh, uh, this boy from that school. 
I was stunned by his ability to reason in that debate, and he was stunned by mine. There we were, an Irish and a black person stood by each other, both historically outsiders, finding some unity in our secret shared sense of superiority. So, to me, superiority or a sense of superiority is kind of quite natural if I look at a world where probably 99% of the people are insecure about who they are or who don't actually really know where they came from. The more I've explored my history, the superiority level has come down a bit. But I'm human, just like everybody else. It goes up and down with frequency. So do all the other feelings. So that was a very long answer to your question. Um, but I hope that reveals something of some of the truths that I live with. But for me, with seeing George Floyd and what was different this time, because it was film, was how the police officer stared straight into the camera as if to say, dare to stop me. I don't know what he was thinking, but that's how it felt. That killing in that way, when I've been, like many of us, numbed by violence on TV and films and, you know, a, a world which is of social media that brings more violence and so forth in, in front of our eyes, whether we want to see it or not. That was different because it was recorded live, it was streamed live, and you were, I, I, there aren't even really words to describe it. It's incomprehensible, it's inconceivable, and it is impossible to ignore if one is really in touch with one's humanity. Thank you so much for sharing all of that so honestly, because it is, it's, I mean, it's surprising to me to hear that perspective. And it's so humbling and so eye-opening and mind-opening. And it feels like these conversations are just so important because if we, if we don't yeah. listen to each other and listen to, to each other's perspectives, then just like with anything, with any relationships, we're, we're kind of making, up, making it up. We're making up the narrative. Yes, based on monoliths presented to us of people who are black and white. There's no such thing. There's one race, literally, biologically, scientifically, there are multiple ethnic groups within that. And at some point, with all the migration that has taken place since the beginning of time, we all carry that of the other. And, you know, we were having this conversation the other day. There aren't enough ancestors in the past for <laughs> us to all not be related yeah. to each other. <laughs> you do the math. And so for me, it's a powerful reminder to not be led by stories that mainstream media 
pushes in front of me now almost 24 seven, because it feels to me, well, they benefit from continuance of pain mm. and suffering of humans. I would love to see a responsible newspaper that gave a balanced perspective of reality or didn't write in inflammatory language and in inflammatory ways. Not all white people are the same and not all black people are the same. My story is completely different to most other black people's. When I meet another black person who thinks in a similar way to me or has a similar perspective, I realize that it's almost unique to a very small area of Africa where slaves were taken from to just three islands out of the whole. So you can almost pinpoint these beliefs carried through our systems, family systems, stories told in the quiet of the morning or whilst a meal is being prepared as your grandmother or your grandfather speaks mm. their truths and we pick them up and carry them and on they go. So it's the recognition, I think, as we're exploring here that we can start to change the narrative by really honoring the past. Thank you, Grandpa, you taught me that. And in learning that from you, I had an opportunity to look at it and say, does does this truth that is yours also fit well for me? Or can I choose something different? The child that grows up in a family of thieves can choose to stop stealing. And the authors of destruction and devastation are also innocent. That's not to say that we condone these things, but we have an honest awareness of certain yeah. truths. That's so powerful, isn't it? That realization that in this day and age, it is safe for us to choose. It is safe for us to, to choose something different to what our families chose to believe. Yeah. Oh, the dog's barking. I wonder what he has to say about it all. <laughs> I wonder if dogs have racism. I bet they don't. They're probably too clever for that. <laughs> Actually, I've seen it when you have the wild dogs in India and you one pack passes another pack, they really go for each other. So actually it is yeah. natural yeah. in nature. But I think you know, when I when I go out into my garden, we just recently kind of potted in some new things and there's some old things and my partner's saying, no, that one's dead. And then my heart is like, no, I'm going to keep watering it. There's life in that little puppy. He called it the wet puppy. I, I called it potential. <laughs> so I moved it. I changed its environment. I watered it and I just kept sending it messages of, you can do this. Come on. And today I went out oh, just before our call wow. and I was like, oh, look, three new leaves have sprouted. That's 
gives me inspiration and a chance to believe that change, even if we only move a centimeter, at least we move. And having this conversation for me has really opened my heart to really hearing the other, not hearing the other in the context of uh, a joke or a story at a party that you then kind of share with your black friends and go, aren't those white people so racist? But to really sit as two human beings, two women who, let's say on the line of women, we know discrimination, but who know what it is to feel different Mm. and own that truth and then decide as I hope and I think and I believe we both have sought to take responsibility for what belongs to us and acknowledge what we as a result put out back into the world. Yeah. What occurs to me just as we've been talking is and this I'm just curious because it's the first time that I've really observed it in this way when we talk about that we really are derived from a concrete pool of ancestors and there aren't enough people for in history for us to have come all from different places then if further along down our lineage so you know speaking from my perspective down this white lineage if you know, some of our ancestors have, they, they still carry in their blood, in their programming, they still carry this kind of distant loyalty to, for example, um, a black ancestor or, uh, you know, black ancestors. But then because of the way that their lineage has evolved, they've ended up seeing themselves as superior, seeing themselves as as greater than this other group, then internally that creates complete emotional turmoil and disruption because on the one hand there is this very quiet underlying feeling of belonging to this group which on in the you know in current circumstances is seen as completely separate and inferior and it feels like that can then that emotional turmoil can then feed this you know you don't know what to do with it and so you attack and you judge and it feeds the the separation does that make sense Hmm. yes that's what we're seeing now if i look at the word racist and violent in description of a human being I go into contracted space. My mind starts to close and I literally feel a little dry in my throat. If I change the word racist and violent Mm. to traumatized and vulnerable, I see then a human being again who has, for whatever reason, and I don't know, but they have experienced something in their Mm. past that has induced them to behave that way. And then I, when I 
find the space to see everybody as a victim and a perpetrator, as someone who's been traumatized in some way, be it small or great or considerable. We all experience trauma as we can tolerate it. Then I have compassion and respect for all. So in this way, I know that I'm leaning into the African perspective is that mm. if one suffers, we all suffer. And we see the knock-on effect of it throughout systems. But I'm also reminded, you know, my grandmother was Tutsi. And that's a tribe that was from Rwanda. And there was a genocide in which, which sought to annihilate her tribe. They healed that trauma where victim and perpetrator were treated and seen as equals, sat side by side on the grassy knoll in the village as equals. And that country has had mm. the most significant restoration after such a profound trauma than anywhere else. Not even South Africa through its peace and reconciliation has really reached that space. And not to say that Rwanda is perfect, but it is really from my mind, a beacon of light in what is possible when we find a place to suspend judgment and really look at what stands behind people. And I know that's a bold step for humans to take. And I respect there are lots, many even, who could not take that step. And that's something we have to live with and accept. But it is possible to do it. It is possible to hold the concept of two truths at once, to hold the yes and the no. Yeah. Requires courage yeah. and resilience. As I see it, my ancestors, those who lived through slavery, must have had an enormous amount of resilience and trust that a future day would come that would be better. And I'm that, I'm not a slave on a plantation. I'm not living that trauma. But I hope I can honor the trauma that they experienced by releasing the trauma that I inherited as a result. Mm. So powerful. So our dreams may not be manifested in our lifetime. They may be manifested two, three, four generations from now. Yeah, and that's so important to remember, isn't it? Because we're so used to having this, we're so conditioned to expect immediate results. Yeah. And, you know, when when systems and structures and initiatives are put in place because they need quick results for political reasons or whatever other reasons, they really do a disservice because this is about planting seeds over the course of, you know, many lifetimes that are going to flourish and, and, and bear fruit. And if we don't invest from that standpoint, and believe that those seeds that we're planting are going to bear fruit and this is going to bring about change. And if we 
get disheartened because we don't see immediate results or the quick results that we're so used to expecting, then that's where I think we can lose momentum. Well, I love this way you talk about uh, bearing fruit because it's an image that I hold in my mind that solutions take time to ripen. Solutions like fruit ripen in the fall. So yes, we have to keep planting and nurturing the soil and bit by bit sifting the environment of the soil in which these seeds are planted. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What a conversation. Thank you, Helen, for really showing up today and being present and having this difficult conversation. (laughs) I really appreciate it. And I know that I have many more things to ponder as a result. I I learned too by speaking to a white person about race. Mm, It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and for sharing your story so openly and so vulnerably. Um, Yeah, like you, this conversation has, and the other conversations that we've had, they, they have really opened my heart and opened my mind in, in a new way. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Conversations with Ourselves. A difficult conversation indeed. I would love to hear what your thoughts are on this conversation. And if you too are having conversations with others who seem to be diametrically opposed in their vision, their view, their perspective, their experience, their understanding of race and racism. What have you learned? What have you discovered? Don't forget to subscribe and please feel free to get in touch. I'm aware that this can be a highly emotive conversation to have. It touches us at the very core of who we are, the more we can engage and share our experiences. Long term, the better for all.